Yahoo announced a security breach affecting upwards of 1 billion user accounts. Cyber attack leaves 145 million eBay users at risk. Target announced up to 110 million customers may have had their identity and financial information compromised. Cyber security breach at Equifax could affect 143 million American consumers. And now your host, Nexus IT Group. Welcome back to another episode of Hacked into the Minds of Cybersecurity Leaders, brought to you by Nexus IT Security Group. This is your host, Ben Hotailing. Today, we are joined by Michael Starks. Michael is a highly experienced security engineer with experience in numerous industries. He's also the current president of ISSA's Fort Worth chapter. Great to have you on, Michael. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Today, we're going to chat about ISSA, the future of the IT security profession, and ransomware. To kick things off, love to give our listeners a little overview of your background, your experience in the space. So tell us your story. All right. Well, uh, it's not really that atypical for a, a security guy, I guess. I've been in the industry for about 15 years now, and I started out as it's pretty much a, I, I guess, just a geek who likes to tinker and likes to play. I was working in a healthcare company, working on the help desk, actually, and HIPAA had just come about. The company was needing somebody to fulfill the role of a security analyst to meet the HIPAA requirements. And because my boss knew that I was interested in security and I like to tinker and and I guess they thought I was competent enough. They gave me an opportunity, gave me a, a leg up. At the time, there were no uh, cybersecurity degrees. About the best they had was was a degree in computer science kind of stuff. It was really, back then, still an emerging field. And I got into the role of the security analyst and went to the senior and then moved around and, and became an engineer and, and architect and so on. And uh, for the past almost year, I've been president of uh, the Fort Worth chapter of ISSA. Oh, I should mention too that back then I, I helped start the Rochester, New York chapter of ISSA. And that is uh, a great chapter that has been doing a security conference for, I think, about, about 10 years now. It grows every year. They're doing a great job. And then I moved down to Fort Worth, Texas. In my capacity uh, as president of the uh, Fort Worth chapter of ISSA, we bring together the the local community here in Fort Worth on this side of the Metroplex. There's another chapter in Plano called the North Texas chapter. It's a great chapter, very large chapter for people who live over in that area. So the Fort Worth chapter was really designed for the people that really you know couldn't make the drive. And each chapter is kind of a unique little entity and does things their own way under the umbrella of ISSA. Okay, great. So who are members of ISSA? All kinds of people. Um, we have people that have been in the industry for forever, you know, since it began. We have people like Bruce Schneier, who's a very well-known cryptographer. We have vendors, we have salespeople, we have students, and everything in between. CIOs, CISOs, engineers, analysts, penetration testers, you name it. Anybody who has an interest in information security as a career might be a member of ISSA. Gotcha. So kind of playing off your experience, if I'm a help desk, want to get into security one day, would I you know, come to a meeting? Yeah, that's a great way to get started. You know, one of the things about information security is you'll find that it's a profession where there are a lot of people that are tinkerers and who kind of come into it all on their own. So it's driven by curious individuals. 
if you're a person that is just curious about cybersecurity or information security, it's sometimes it's called, you can just show up at a meeting or just uh, ask somebody to bring you along. Our meetings, for example, are free. We have great presentations. Uh, some meetings charge maybe a nominal fee like 10 or $20 for lunch or something like that. But you just show up and you get to talking to people and you know ask questions. And most people are really, really excited when people ask them questions about what they do and what their career is because it's a great career. Sure. One thing that we hear over and over again is individuals struggling to get into the profession, get their foot in the door. Do you have any success stories of how somebody has you know, utilized ISSA to get their foot in the door when they may not have that opportunity presented to them in their place of business? I don't know that one particular success story comes to mind. At the risk of uh, maybe a little bit of hubris, uh, I, I would consider myself a success story because I didn't have a degree in computer science or information security. And and I was fortunate enough early on to be mentored by somebody who was in ISSA. They were professional. They were really, really great at what they did. They were a consultant for the company I was working at. So he brought me in and, and said, you know, hey, Mike, this is what security is about. And he taught me the ropes, not only technical stuff, but how to be professional and how to actually make this a career instead of just sort of going to work every day and, and doing stuff and, and then just going home, you know, actually being involved in the profession and moving the state of information security forward. That being said, what we try to do is identify those people who have that same passion and take them under our wing and say, yeah, let's go out for drinks and let's talk about it. What are the questions you have? Maybe we can introduce you to somebody that is looking for somebody, even if it's an entry-level position, just to get your foot in the door. So we have a program that matches people with mentors, with people who are looking for some guidance in information security. And we're very, very interested in bringing in students as well. And in fact, if if there's a student that starts to become involved in our chapter, shows up a couple of times, looks like they have an interest, we'll sponsor their membership. That's fantastic. That sounds like a great outlet to make the step in the right direction of you know, getting into the profession. Are there other positions within ISSA that you can hold as, like you as a, the president? Do you have a vice president and a secretary, or how does that work? Sure. So, you know, we're a nonprofit, of course, and every chapter has their own board. There are a few key positions, such as uh, president, vice president, secretary, and treasurer. Any particular chapter might have something like events director, marketing director, membership director, you know, any of those types of positions that are going to be responsible for an even number of tasks to keep the chapter going. There are chapters that are very small, where only a few people come to the meetings, and it's very casual, very small, very personal. And there are chapters that have 150 to 200 people at every meeting, and it's almost like a mini conference. So depending on the size of the chapter, the board will scale appropriately. Does your membership travel with you? Like you moving from Rochester to, to Fort Worth, was that a pretty easy transition and excited to get involved in that chapter? Or let's say I wanted to move to Minneapolis, would my uh, membership travel with me? Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, when you become a member of ISSA, basically how it works is you pay some international dues and then there's local chapter dues. So really all you have to do is if you move across the country or across the world for that matter, you just change your chapter on the website and you go to the new chapter and say, hey, I'm new here. And chances are you'll be welcomed with, with open arms. It's, it's really very simple. So when I came down from Rochester, New York, I just looked up where's the closest chapter and I showed up at a meeting and started making some friends. 
Yeah, quick way to do that. Um, well, you know, sounds like you're around lots of different talent from, you know, your entry level, people just interested in it to some of the most important roles within cybersecurity. So curious on, on your thoughts to this. Read quite a few articles lately stating that all roles within IT will in some way or another be related to IT security by 2025. What's your thoughts on that? So I guess I would say that not every role will be a security role. There are there's a very specific role for security within IT. Uh, everything from risk management to secure application development to intrusion detection to penetration testing and so on. All of those are very specific skill sets. And that's what sort of defines information security as a profession. There's all kinds of sub-disciplines in it. However, that being said, in order for a company to be successful, a company has to ensure that security is integral to every role. There's just too many ways to compromise a company these days. So really, we need everybody's help. It can't just be the security guys and gals that are responsible for protecting the company. To add to that, as more systems become secure and secure by default, the bad guys move their attacks, and they move their attacks to the users. So uh, social engineering is a big deal, and the attacks start to manipulate people, and, and they're not even manipulating the systems, per se. So uh, awareness is very key. So I want to say one more thing about that. Now, I think we haven't done a great job of designing systems that make security the preferable option. In other words, easy to use. That's starting to change. We have companies like Google who are making authentication easier. NIST just released some new password guidelines saying things like complexity and password expiration were really not even needed anymore unless the account has been compromised. So it's getting better. We need to do better in the InfoSec community at making security easier and preferable. I think the better we do with that, the less we'll have to think about trying to change users' behavior such that everybody has to be a security professional. Because really, you know, salespeople should be salespeople and doctors should be doctors and plumbers should be plumbers. You know, we shouldn't really be requiring these people to conform their behavior to our ways of doing things. Sure. How can IT pros with minimal skills or their their main focus not being an IT security start to to move in that direction? Specialize on it. Let's say you're an application developer and I'd like to specialize in application security. What steps can someone take to make that transition? Sure. One of the great things about the the era in which we live is that there are so much information out there and it is freely available. So if you go spend a few hours on YouTube, it, let's say you're interested in web security, you go to the OWASP website, you'll find more information than you can possibly read about web application security, and it's all freely available. Start to be curious and follow your your curiosity and do those things that interest you. I think that's one of the most important things is is to be curious and actually do those things that interest you because those are the things that you're going to naturally want to pursue. It's not going to be a job, right? So I love security, uh, the, the stuff that I do, and I would be doing it even if I didn't get paid for it. So that's kind of the best place to be in, right? If you take advantage of the resources that are out there that are freely available, you may find that you can set up a lab in your own house and you can design your own systems and you can attack them and you can defend them 
you can go to meetings, you can meet other people. There's so many things that you can do that don't even require you to necessarily go back to school and get a degree. Be curious, go find the information and, and use it and learn. Mm -hmm. What is it about cybersecurity, information security that doesn't only make it a job, but, but makes it your hobby? You know, I've wondered that myself. I've wondered, did I go into security because of the way I inherently am, or did security make me this way? <laughs> um, and I'm not, I'm not sure which one is better. <laughs> but uh, so, so there, there's one thing I want to talk about, and that is the security mindset. Bruce Schneier, again, I'm bringing up that name. He talks about something called the security mindset. And the security mindset is where if you go into a store, you automatically sort of start looking around to see where the security cameras are. And you might think to yourself, oh, I wonder where the blind spots are. Or, oh, I wonder what would happen if the sun's glare at three o'clock hit that lens at just that right angle. And you don't think about these things because you're a bad guy and you're thinking, oh, I want, I want to attack the, the store or rob the store. You think about these things because you just have a certain different way of looking at things. You, you wonder how things can be broken rather than how you can build things. And that combined with curiosity is one of those things that make, I think, a good security person is they're just curious about how things can fail. When we think about a career in cybersecurity, really what we're doing is we're becoming hopefully experts in looking at the various ways things can fail, the unexpected ways things can fail. That's to me what makes a really good person for, for this career and separate somebody who just goes to school to learn the material, to pursue the career because they want to make a lot of money and, and just goes home at night and, and browses Facebook. That's okay too. We need those people too. But uh, I'm looking for somebody that has the security mindset when I'm looking for a qualified candidate. Mm -hmm. Okay. Definitely a different mentality. I'm not sure that I, I have it, but the more I get into the profession, I think that it becomes more apparent to think that way. That's a very interesting thought kind of piggybacking off the last couple of topics, what suggestions do you have to help IT units start to put security first, be it the products and technology companies that you mentioned previously, or do you think that that necessarily isn't the best method, meaning, hey, let's just leave it to the dedicated cybersecurity teams in order to make an all-around you know, more secure environment, of course? Sure. So the security team has to be integral in the business. It's not really a great idea to have a solution already thought about and spec'd out and built, and and then you bring it to the security people for review. That's oftentimes uh, a mistake. What I would say is that the security team needs to be involved in every single step, from the initial project initiation phase to the the choice of the product. They should have input on that. They should have input on the way it's designed on the roles and responsibilities, the permissions, all of that stuff along the way. If you put that effort in upfront, even though it may seem like more work upfront, you'll have a larger payback on the other end because you won't get to a point where the company is forced to make a decision before they go live, whether they want to accept some kind of huge risk or not because it wasn't identified early on. So making security part of that process that business process from the very early stages because it is a business function is is the right way to approach it 
So I read a few posts that you made regarding ransomware on uh, on your LinkedIn. You thought that you had some very unique thoughts, and I think that they were slightly different than what, I, of course, I've I've seen out there in the news. So can you share a little bit more on your your general thoughts of ransomware and the the theory behind it, and you know, how we can protect the profession of cybersecurity during ransomware attacks? Sure. So I think what you're referring to is is probably an article I wrote where I said we should stop paying ransoms, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah. So let me just say that those thoughts in that article took quite a while to coalesce. I had talked to various people. I'm also on the ethics committee of ISSA. Uh, I had talked to other members of um, the ethics committee and I said, hey guys, what do you think about this? And I got varying uh, answers on whether you should pay the ransom. And the thing is, I don't think any of them are necessarily right or wrong. Yeah, maybe that sounds like a cop-out, but it depends on context. When we're trying to decide whether to make an ethical choice or not, we're looking at the context. Let's say you're infected with ransomware, you're a hospital, there are critical systems that are infected, there is no way to recover, patients' lives are on the line. In that case, it may be appropriate to pay the ransom. You know, I can't really make those decisions each person has to decide for themselves in that situation what's appropriate. Some would say that, hey, our first priority is to the business. And if the business can't function, we need to help them do whatever they need to be able to do to function. And I think that's a perfectly reasonable answer. That being said, the other side of that is when we pay the ransoms, we are encouraging criminal activity. So we have to be very clear about what's happening there. We are encouraging the economics of ransomware being in favor of the bad guy. So if you look at it from a behavioral economics point of view, the bad guys are saying, well, hey, this is a, this is a good business to be in. So I'm going to continue infecting people and I'm going to continue uh, demanding ransom because it's profitable. How do we resolve that? How do we actually try to make the ethical choice not promote bad guys and still do good to our businesses, right? Uh, because we're the employees of their businesses. I think the answer is, and by the way, I'm, I'm totally cool with somebody saying, oh my God, Mike, you're wrong. So far, I think what the answer is, is that you model the risk before the ransomware attack happens. There's lots of ways to model risk. You can use FAIR, you can use a qualitative, traditional kind of risk assessment methodology. But before you have the ransomware infection, you sit down at a table and you say, what would happen if these five systems were infected with ransomware? What would happen if a thousand systems were infected with ransomware? What would happen if our backups weren't good? Okay, so so you play these scenarios out. And when you're doing that, when you're risk modeling, you can actually identify those systems, particular vulnerabilities that actually might cause you to have to make that decision to pay. Right. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to avoid paying because we don't want the bad guys to continue being bad guys and have to have the incentive. So try to sit down, model those things and fix those problems before you get infected with ransomware. So you don't actually have to get to the point where you're making that decision. I think it's probably the most balanced and ethical thing we can do in order to avoid the problem. Sure. That makes sense. I'm about to put you in a really tough spot. Under what circumstances would you not pay? Do you have an example like you did with the hospital example where you you probably should, but on the other side, you're infected. Unfortunately, processes didn't work out. You have an issue now. Under what circumstances, or if you did have an example, 
would you would you say, hey, we're not going to pay? So certainly, if we had a way to re- a way to recover, even if that recovery wasn't as quick as paying, I would not pay or assist in paying. One of the things we have to communicate, I think, is that information security or cybersecurity is a profession, and we have a code of ethics. So, for example, when you join ISSA, you're you're agreeing to a code of ethics. So, as professionals, we we have to act like professionals. If if we were an electrician, we wouldn't necessarily leave a bunch of frayed wires you know, hanging out of the wall, right? So similarly, we should try to act as professionals and, and not pay when, whenever possible. It's always a discussion, you know, and it's always a series of trade-offs. You have to decide for yourself, if I lose my job, if I take an ethical position here and I say, I'm not going to assist you in paying, assist you being my employer in paying because I think it's unethical and I don't want to promote bad guys. What if I lose my job? What if I what if losing my job means I can't provide for my family, right? Maybe your your own personal situation is to be able to provide for your family is is more important. So each person has to make that trade-off. But in general, that's a long way of saying in what situations wouldn't I pay? I wouldn't pay where we had an, uh, a way to recover, even if that way to recover was going to take more work than paying. Sure. And I imagine costs go into that as well. If it did cost more to recover than it would to pay the ransom, you'd still think ethically should not pay. That's a decision for the business owner about about cost. I think my job is primarily to advise them. I'll, I have to say, okay, the cost over here to, to recover without paying, let's say it's going to be $2,000 and the cost to pay is $1,000. I still think you should Pursue the option that costs $2,000 because if we pay, we're going to have a target on our back. The short-term thinking is, let's pay, let's get this back. The longer-term thinking is, now we're a sucker, right? I mean, (laughs) mean, to to be blunt here, uh, they're going to come back. And the other thing I'd like to mention is that there is no one guarantee that you're going to get your data back. Remember, you're dealing with bad guys. So it's not like they themselves have this business reputation that they have to defend. Yeah, sure. Um, you do. So so paying is always risky. You, you may not even get your data back. Share with us how those conversations would go you know, with the executive board, board of directors, whomever it is that is, is making these overarching policies under these circumstances. You know, what would that conversation be like? Well, first of all, you might want to update your resume, right? <laughs> 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 you know, first things first. Really, what you're what you're talking about here is what is our incident response plan like? My buddies and I like to joke that you know it, it begins with like curling up in the corner in a fetal position under your desk, right? And or just calling, <laughs> just call mom; she'll know what to do, right? Um, <laughs> but this is all about incident response. So ideally, you would have already had this planned out. In incident response, we say there's five or six stages, depending on who you ask. There's the identification phase, there's containment, there's eradication, there's recovery, and there's lessons learned. And then some people say, well, at the beginning, you have the preparation, which is the actual incident response process itself. You would execute those steps. You want to know what you're dealing with. You want to contain the threat so that it doesn't spread. You want to get rid of it if you can. And and sometimes there's ways to recover. For example, if you just have a workstation that is infected with cryptoware, well, what was on the workstation? Uh, not so much. Can you just clone it and uh, and be done with it? Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, you didn't really have business loss in that case, so you wouldn't actually get to the to the point of having to explain something. But let's say that you know it's it's a it's a drastic kind of scenario. You would have a designated person that is not handling the incident, 
because you want the people handling the incident to actually be doing the work to continue to try to re remediate the damage. You would have uh, a liaison talking to the executives or the board, giving them a status update, telling them what kind of business loss we can expect, you know, when we're going to be recovered, all this kind of stuff. You don't want the worker bees who are doing the work actually talking to the executives or the board. They need to be focused. So you have that liaison there. The worker bees, there are specific roles and responsibilities that actually you lay out in IR plan. But basically, you have the worker bees talk to the liaison, the liaison talks to the executives, and then hopefully, you know, you recover soon enough. Now, do you have that conversation beforehand, the what if, or you know, should there already be that technical solution? And if it were to happen, your job's good is gone. You know, again, this is one of those, where do I draw a line in the sand kind of questions. And the important part of this is ensuring that you have this discussion before the event. I might go to my boss and say, hey, boss, you want me to be a professional. You want me to be somebody that's not only doing technical work, but is actually uh, you know, a good person and a professional and is doing the right thing. Therefore, I think that we need to have a plan to not pay for ransomware. So you've made the preparation up front at that actual demarcation point where you're actually infected and you're actually having to make that call, that's, that's a tough one, right? You know, it's, it's like, okay, what, do I press the red button or, or don't I? <laughs> do I stand by my values or don't I? And it, it's, it's different for every person. You know, like I said, everybody has different circumstances. Just because you pay, it doesn't mean that you necessarily did something unethical. I'm just talking about trying to have a new, having people avoid that situation. Sure. Last question before we get into overrated, underrated. One topic that we talk about and address in, in really every single one of our, our podcasts, the security talent gap. Do you have any suggestions, thoughts, ideas on how we can address the talent gap and you know, start to close that gap? Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot. It's unfortunately, it's tough. Okay, so let me go back to the, the whole security mindset thing. I'll give you an example. At, at my company, we, we just hired somebody that has a background with some security tools, but primarily in, in kind of a service desk type role, not a traditional sort of professional security guy that you might say. He's young in the profession. I think he's going to be a great security person. He's going to be a great professional. He's smart. He's curious. He's careful. He's articulate. He knows how to communicate and so on. That all together is he's, it's going to make him into somebody that's very well-rounded. Now, if you take somebody that says, I'm going to go back to school and get a degree in, in security. They're going to absorb the content. They're going to pass the courses and so on. They're going to get their degree. Are they going to be ready to be hired at that time? I don't know. You know, that would come out in the interview process. Are they just reciting what they have sort of learned from course material or do they understand it? Are they comprehending it? Do they know about the principles of least privilege, about separation of duties? Can they execute on those? Do they know how to implement those into the solutions that we might ask them to, to develop? Those are kind of different things. Somebody being able to take those concepts and, and the curiosity and all those things and actually execute on it versus somebody who has the degree. So in this profession, it's not unusual to hire somebody without an information security degree or in some cases, a computer science degree. We're looking at a different set of skills that not everybody necessarily has. Okay, so that being said, we have a skills gap. Yes, it's true. Or a, a talent shortage, we'll say. Yes, that's true. 
we can't afford to only look for those people who only have that right combination of creative thinking and security mindset and education and all that kind of stuff, because there are more positions than there are people to fill them. So what can we do about that? I think what we can do about that is is hire those people who have, let's say, the degree, but aren't necessarily fully qualified at that time and put them to work doing things that we have to be doing, but aren't necessarily the, the sexiest of tasks, asset management, maybe some project management, things like that, things that are valuable, patching, that it can get you a lot of bang for your buck. And let's see how they do. Let's see if they sort of develop also into that creative person who's looking for new solutions and who's looking at, hey, how do I break this thing over here? Because in an interview, uh, you know, you don't have a whole lot of time to decide, is this person going to work out or not? So yeah, it is it is a problem that in so far as there aren't enough of the kind of people I'm looking for, but we sort of have to ease off a little too and say, all right, well, we we need people. So let's let's expand our, our definition of what a good security professional is going to be. Okay. Do you think that the security mindset can be learned or is that just inherent? I don't know. <laughs> is it a nature <laughs> or a nurture thing? You know, that's that's the big debate. You know, looking back to my youth, you know, I always liked taking things apart and putting them back together. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. It it would be really interesting if people could sort of weigh in on that. You know, maybe if there's uh, somebody who's able to comment on the podcast, you know, yeah. what do you think? Security mindset or nature or nurture? I agree. Yeah. No, we can definitely get that going. Some of our past guests and such. It sounds like a great idea. All right. Let's hop into overrated, underrated before we let you go. Excited about this one. I think that we're going to get you uh, right, right where we should. So let's start off with <laughs> this week's topic of the week, the crack Wi-Fi vulnerability. Overrated or underrated? Overrated. Yeah. Consider that it requires uh, the attacker to be in, in close proximity. And yes, you can use a cantenna and all that kind of stuff, I know. But if you're out at Starbucks, uh, you're not even using WPA. The, the network's open anyway. So it's only somebody that's interested in attacking um, somebody that's, that's it's sort of like a targeted attack, actually. Okay. I've seen quite a bit of literature of uh, today over you know Monday through through Wednesday earlier this week. Not so much. It was that the you know skies are falling, but now it seems like more people are uh, taking a little bit different, more relaxed approach to it. But yeah, it, it is a serious vulnerability. But you know when you risk rate it, you realize that oh yeah, you know we'll probably be okay. Sure. Okay. Next one: spear phishing. Overrated or underrated? I'm going to have to say underrated. Um, underrated. Spear phishing is is very effective and it's very dangerous, and I see it a lot. I see a lot of spear phishing emails pretending to be executives, and they are conversational in nature. They don't have atta attachments. They don't have links, so we can't filter for them, and so they're very difficult to detect. And if a person, uh, the attacker, is is good at what they do, they have a good command of English and so on, it can be very persuasive. And it can result in the business losing a lot of money. Any industries in particular more vulnerable to spear phishing over another? No, no, I don't think so. They're they're all vulnerable. Of course, there are certain types of uh, vulnerabilities that may be unique to an industry. But in every industry I've worked in, healthcare, banking, uh, outsourcing, and so on, everybody's getting phished. Then last one, ransomware. Had to do it. Ransomware, overrated <laughs> or underrated? Underrated. 
So let me tell you why I think it's underrated. A lot of the ransomware has been ineffective because they've made a mistake. There's been a bug in the ransomware. Maybe researchers are able to recover the key or something like that. However, if you have a good piece of ransomware that implements the software correctly and uses strong ciphers, unless you have a backup, you're toast. You know, and <laughs> you know, unless you know. Now, it's always a good idea to save a copy of that system that is infected in case later on something comes along where we can go back and decrypt it. But if the encryption is good, if the software is good and doesn't have too many bugs, chances are you've actually lost your data unless you can restore from backup. Protect your internet-connected devices, huh? Protect your interwebs, man. They're, you know, <laughs> back up to two or three places. Make sure that it's you have off-site backup. Make sure it's offline backup. Make sure your backups are not accessible with Windows shares and so on, because some of this ransomware actually has worm capability now, and they'll go around and encrypt your backups too. They're not very nice. <laughs> it doesn't sound like it. <laughs> All idiots. right. Well, great. Hey, Mike, this has been fantastic. You'll love the conversation. When's the next chapter meeting? We have uh, the chapter meeting on the second Tuesday of every month, just coming up around the first week of November. If you go to issafortworth.org, we'll have registration open soon. Should be a neat one. We're going to be talking about application penetration testing and, and some other things. So uh, yeah, come on out and introduce yourself. Yeah, great. Where else can people find you? We're on LinkedIn. We're on Twitter. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, especially on Twitter. That's probably where we're most active usually are are tweeting about something that's try to keep it fun and, and funny too. So it's, that's the place to be. Great. What's the, what's the handle? At uh, ISSA Fort Worth, I believe. Now, see, so you put me on the spot here. I'm going to have to uh, check this. <laughs> we'll might, put it in the, we'll put it in the description. <laughs> yeah. At ISSA Fort Worth. Yep. Okay. All right. Great. Hey, Mike, thanks so much. It's been great. All right, man. Uh, it's great. Anytime. Thank you so much. We want to thank everyone for listening to today's podcast brought to you by Nexus IT Group. If you're looking for a new career challenge, let's chat. If you're looking to hire new talent, reach out. Or if you just want to talk about cybersecurity, email us at info at nexusitgroup.com. Until next time, stay safe and stay secure.